I wasn't particularly interested in it. It wasn't until I had kids that my drinking started to ramp up. And it turns out that's not that uncommon of a story. I really didn't develop problematic drinking until into my 30s. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 402. Today, we're talking about preventing alcohol issues in your kid with Jessica Leahy. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of Mindful Parenting, and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Hello, 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 my friend. So glad you are here. Hey, if you haven't yet done so, please, 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 hit that subscribe button so you don't miss anything. And if you get value from this podcast, please, please do me a favor. Go over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review. It just helps us grow. And we have grown all organically from you and just takes like 30 seconds. And it makes such a big difference to me and my team. I hugely, hugely appreciate it. In just a moment, I'm going to be sitting down with someone I am super honored to be able to call a friend. Jessica Leahy is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. And she was on the podcast before to talk about that book. And you can listen to episode number 163. And she's here today to talk about her new book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. And we're going to talk about This very important issue, you know, none of us want our kids to grow up addicted to alcohol or drugs, but how do we prevent it, right? And so it turns out there are research-based ways to inoculate our children to the harmful effects of addiction. I think this is such an important episode, Jess helps us to raise healthy kids in a culture of dependence. So, so important. So let's just dive in. Join me at the table as I talk to Jessica Leahy. The April 20th Mindful Parenting Retreat Day is filling up fast. Join me and other parents in Wilmington, Delaware for a day of rest and relaxation, mindfulness and mindful communication practices, and a live podcast too. And my special guest for the live podcast is, drumroll please, Lynetta Willis. You know her from episode 366 and 400. She is a psychologist and sought-after speaker who teaches her Triggered to Transformed program to struggling parents. Join us and bring a friend to this powerful day-long retreat in Wilmington, Delaware on April 20th, 2024. But hurry, space is limited. Go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash retreat to get your spot now. That's mindfulmamamentor.com slash retreat. Jess, thanks so much for coming back on the Mindful Mama podcast. I'm so glad to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. I really love chatting with you. Yay. So I I think we should dive right into that, like that question that we were talking about just beforehand. So, (laughs) okay, we're going to talk about like how to inoculate your kids against addiction to like drugs and alcohol, right? Like this is an incredibly important thing. And one of my ideas 
which is not apparently my own idea. Um, it was that like, oh, I want my kids to be like Europeans that like, you know, Italian, like my my sister-in-law, she has wine with lunch. She grew up in Rome. It's all very cool. Like n- there's not like a, a big issue there here in the United States. It seems like we have more issues with it. So maybe I should just like give my kids sips of wine throughout when they're like, you know, 12 plus and just like make it be like no big deal. And that wine is something you do with the family. So therefore, it's really boring and make it normalize. And I was totally in that camp. And you have recently debunked that. You were in that camp too? I was, yes. In fact, I've been really clear on the fact that I have raised my two kids very differently. Uh, My older kid, he's 24 now, he uh, was not only allowed to have sips as a kid um, when he was first, I can't believe I did this, when he was first born, a friend of ours sent us a really nice bottle of wine, really just a, an exceptional bottle of wine. I write about it in the addiction inoculation. And I was like, well, the first taste he has of wine should be of this really, really nice one, right? So I put some on my finger and I put it on his tongue. And, you know, these are, it's not like that right there. Oh my gosh, that was the thing, you know, if your kid becomes, you know, has alcohol use disorder, that that's going to be the thing. But we do we do know a couple of things about predictors, about things that have a very uh, weighty correlation, things that are statistically significant when it comes to um, people who develop alcohol use disorder during their lifetime. And uh, let me be really clear just about my language. So I'm using the term alcohol use disorder instead of um, alcoholic or um, addict or um, addicted, that kind of thing. Um, we we try really hard to use person first language and to eliminate some of the shame and blah, blah, blah. You know, I call myself an alcoholic, but whenever I talk about anyone else, I use substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, a human with alcohol use disorder. Anyway, to get to the point. Um, so I release these daily videos on TikTok and Instagram moving through the uh, addiction inoculation. And I released one talking about the fact that the earlier a kid tries um, alcohol, drugs and alcohol, the higher their lifelong risk of substance use disorder, which is true. I mean, it just bears out in the in the in the statistics. However, this is not a causation kind of thing because the only way we could get a causation for this would be to take two groups of very young children, give some alcohol, give some placebo, blah, 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 double blinded, all that sort of stuff. And as I say in the video, you know, we're also not you know, I'm not going to do that study. I'm also not going to do be a part of the study where they're checking to make sure that parachutes are effective against dying when you jump out of planes. Like if we want to have a causation, you know, relationship there, we need the placebo. And I'm not going to be in the placebo group when it comes to parachutes. Anyway, so the younger a kid is when they first try drugs or alcohol, let's stick with alcohol since that's what we're talking about, the higher their lifelong risk if they try it in fourth in eighth grade. Then their lifelong risk is somewhere around 41%. If they try it in high school, you know, the older they get, the lower it gets. It goes down to 17% and it goes down to 11% at 18. Mm -hmm. And then that's where the studies really kind of stop because after that, you're considered to be a young adult. Um, So people got so angry at that and started and those two videos went bananas. And so I'm making a series of videos about, you know, here's the real details on that. And it just seems that if you look at the research, um, if kids try alcohol at, let's say, 11 to 12, they are much more likely to have 
uh, substance use disorder when they get older. It's just, it's highly correlated. There are mediators, there are predictors we can talk about, there are confounders, um, and they're all really interesting. Um, you know, you're more likely to have a high risk of uh, a too early initiate if you're male. You're more likely to early initiate if you're white. You're more likely to early initiate if your parents drink. You're more likely to early initiate if your parents have um, uh, a really, if you're, the culture in your house is sort of pro-drinking, um, that kind of thing. But no matter how you slice it, if you start young, you are more likely to have a disordered relationship with substances over your lifetime. And that just makes a lot of people really upset. And then you talk about the European thing, and I want to cover that really quickly, which is that as a, re so the World Health Organization just came out with their uh, most recent report on sort of the health of the European region. So there's the European region, which includes like Russia and blah, blah, blah. And then there's the European Union, which of course now doesn't include the UK. Um, and the, the European Union as a whole has the highest, the European region as a whole has the highest rates of drinking in the entire world. And they also have the highest rate of deaths attributable to alcohol in the entire world. And you can pick and choose countries when you look at the ones with the lowest rate. It's um, uh, seven out of 10 of them are predominantly Muslim where, you know, they don't drink. Um, and if you look at the highest ones, you know, a lot of your favorite Western European countries are included in those highest rates. And without fine, sli fine dicing and slicing the data too much, um, you know, that European myth of if I give my kids um, alcohol when they're younger, it'll be no big deal. And the, I can somehow teach them how to moderate. It, it's just a myth. It's just a myth, especially if you look at, you know, what countries in Europe tend to have the highest uh, rates of problematic, excessive. It, it, the language is really important when you talk about this stuff. Um, but essentially what we're talking about is the most problematic kind of drinking, which is binge drinking. And those countries are like Portugal and Spain and countries like that have some of the highest rates uh, The top are in the top 10 for, for disordered drinking. Heavy, ep heavy episodic use is what they call binge drinking in the studies. Oh, here is really helpful for me because it's kind of burst my own personal bubble about that and that's good and i i, I will not like push like it's like try, try some wine no so what's really interesting also is what i said at the beginning is so i have two kids that are being raised very differently now my younger kid knows what i know about the statistics because we talk about them all the time because we're doing a lot of prevention work in my house because i'm an alcoholic and my kids are at increased risk of substance use disorder from the get-go um, and my youngest knows that the reason she's not allowed to have alcohol is that it, if she were to have it now, even at 19, it's still um, her brain is not done developing yet. And, um, you know, things that uh, she can take, drink, whatever in her adult brain once she's an adult um, are, could be lower risk. But the stuff that you do during adolescence, you're at higher risk. Um, alcohol and drugs really mess with the development of the brain. So there's that side of it. And I want to keep her risk down as low as possible. And if I can keep her going until 21, um, you know, if I can delay, delay, delay until 21, then I'm doing everything I can to lower her risk. And she knows that. This is good because this is statistics shooting down like my own personal experience, which is 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 very helpful for me because like for me, uh, yeah, I mean, probably I had my first taste of alcohol when I was like four. I think I remember drinking all the dregs of a bottles at my parents party like just going around be like what's this 
But like I, I drank early, like the summer before ninth grade year was the summer that I probably got the most drunk ever in my life. And I did a lot, you know, I did a lot of things like that when I was young. And then my own personal experience, I got to college and I'd kind of been there and done that. Like I had tried hallucinogenic drugs and all kinds of other things. By the time I got to college, I was like, okay, well, I don't need to do this partying thing. I've done that. And I want to take this college experience seriously. But that's one personal story. It's not everybody's experience with drugs and alcohol. And I have to remember that. Well, and yours, your story and my story are fairly similar, actually. Um, So I, you know, my first instance of drinking was, you know, I had tastes really, really young, but my first like drink to get drunk uh, was in middle school. Person, P.S., that I drank with, she's dead now of liver failure. She uh, died of alcohol use disorder. Um, Um, And then, you know, I I was sort of same thing. I was kind of over it. I didn't drink during high school or college, really. It just wasn't my thing. Um, I wasn't particularly interested in it. It wasn't until I had kids that my drinking started to ramp up. And it turns out that's not that uncommon of a story. I really didn't, I didn't develop problematic drinking until into my 30s. Um, And, you know, I thought I was a, I thought I was some kind of weird outlier, but I'm not. You also mentioned the summer before ninth grade. That's the big summer for those transitions, especially the one between middle school and high school. Those are big moments when kids tend to initiate this. So that's your, you know, you're squarely in um, the sort of what I would predict around when kids are going to try stuff. So, and like you, the one of the person I I drank with a lot at that in that time in my life, my boyfriend at the time has died of a drug overdose. Interesting. Yeah, I actually didn't know what happened to the person that I drank with in middle school, and uh, I looked her up on Facebook, and I didn't find her, but I found her sister, and that's when I heard that she had died um, of liver failure in her thirties. Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcast right after this break. You know, some healthy skepticism in my life has served me well. And if you're like that, if you can spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from about a mile away, you read labels like it's your job, congratulations, you're a skeptic. And Ritual knows that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. I take Ritual's Essentials for Women 18 Plus every single day, morning and at lunch, and I am feeling great. I love this vitamin. Ritual's Essentials for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. Plus, Ritual Vitamins are vegan, non-GMO, project verified, gluten and major allergen free, certified B Corp, and made traceable. They select lower carbon packaging, they prioritize sustainably sourced ingredients, and set ambitious climate goals. Plus, Ritual is a female-founded B Corp, which means they are responsible to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash mindful. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash mindful for 25% off. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence 
whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Okay, so now the listener is like, holy (laughs) Jesus, y'all, help me. I do not want my children growing up like these women. (laughs) Goodness gracious. So let's like get down to, you know, what what do we understand about addiction and how what how has our understanding of addiction evolved over the years? So first of all, we have to be really clear on the fact that when I talk about um, drug and alcohol use, I'm talking about adolescence. And adolescence is a time when brains are highly plastic, highly susceptible to environmental factors. And, um, you know, drinking in adolescence is just a lot more dangerous and a lot more damaging to the human brain than it is when you drink when or use when you're an adult. We know that kids who are, for example, chronic users of marijuana, no pun intended, have smaller hippocampuses, have thinning in their prefrontal cortex, that kind of thing. So, um, or in their frontal lobes. So, you know, there's damage that get, can be done during adolescence that is less likely once the brain is done developing and not in that state of incredible plasticity. Um, so there's that. So I'm always interested in just getting kids out of adolescence before, you know, they're ingesting things that can mess with their brain development because I'm a, I'm a former teacher. I'm what I care about is learning and what I care about is protecting kids' brains um, until they're old enough to protect them for themselves. Anyway, that comes to lots of things like head injuries and sports and things like that. Anyway, so what we know is that the best prevention we have is information, that the more kids know about how their brain works and how their brain develops and why drugs and alcohol are more harmful during adolescence than in any other time, why, um, why specifically they are drawn to drugs and alcohol and why that is in terms of, you know, they're really craving novelty. You know, teenagers in general have lower baseline levels of dopamine, although they have slightly higher uptake rates. So that's, you know, it's it's could possibly be a wash. But when they say that life feels boring as a teenager, you know, that could be attributable to their lower baseline levels of dopamine. Um, but the good news is that the way we deal with all of these things like a craving for novelty and a, you know, a craving for dopamine is that in this all dovetails back nicely with my first book, The Gift of Failure, is that some of the best places to get dopamine are through mastering skills and feeling competent and feeling self-efficacy. You can get bursts of dopamine from that. If we want to manage the fact that kids are highly drawn to novelty, which often confers some risk, you know, pushing towards kids towards things that confer positive novelty, like 
trying something new, trying out for play, you know, uh, taking some risk uh, emotionally or academically or whatever, all of these things can help sort of feed that that incredible thirst for novelty and dopamine that um, that kids and adolescents have. So the the mess the big message is delay, 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 delay as long as possible. And in the meantime, you know, use the strengths of adolescents to help them um, feel good about themselves and build skills and become more competent individuals so that they can go out and be competent adults. So I like when as you describe this, like this I can see that the situation that I was in as a teenager where I stopped doing pony club. I didn't do any, I didn't have any outside clubs. I, you know, I stopped that when I was 14. I just started hanging around with friends. I was bored. I was with a group of, like, this is like a recipe for, like, getting involved in drugs and alcohol because you're wanting that dopamine and novelty. And so one of the things I'd always thought after kind of going through that and realizing that wasn't so great was that if I ever have kids, they're going to have, they need to do something when they're in high school. Like, clearly the kids who are in band and in sports, they had at least like this thing was taking up their time to some degree and was uh, was structuring their lives in a way that my life wasn't structured. That I that I think is seems really important for adolescents. This is this is a piece of this. Um, yes. And yes and no. So there's some fine slicing and dicing to be done here. Like um, so, yes, it, overall sports have a somewhat protective factor or protective against substance use for a couple different reasons, including, you know, needing to stay healthy, having to get up for early practices, all that kind of stuff. Um, On the other hand, the top four sports that are actually increased risk for substance use disorder are really the big high contact sports, um, wrestling, lacrosse, um, hockey, and football. So, um, and how much of that has to do with the potential for heads to get knocked around and for there to be potentially some, you know, a little bit of, you know, those concussions are not great for our brains, uh, you know, unclear. But yes, definitely having things that you are intrinsically motivated to do that feed your soul and your mind and your body that are, you know, keeping you from getting bored. Absolutely. And but as the author of The Gift of Failure, I'm also going to say, is overly scheduling kids great? No, it's not. And then I also have to walk that line of this, which is really tough for me because we know that kids who are less monitored, uh, you know, watched, controlled, those kids will have are more likely to initiate drug use younger. But on the other hand, we also know that being highly controlling. Um, leads to kids who lie to their parents more often, and they need to be able to build their autonomy and go out there and become competent adults. So there's this fine line to walk when it comes to managing kids too much and controlling kids too much versus, you know, letting them have their time together. You know, we know, for example, that summers, when kids are hanging out solely with other teenagers with no adults around, gives us the the uh, the is the recipe for initiation of, of substance use. But what's the alternative to like keep your teenager home and never ever let them be unsupervised with other teenagers? Well, no, clearly we can't do that. So there's a fair amount amount of um balancing to be done here in adolescence. So I guess this goes back to this information piece. Like, you know, because it's interesting because I can see that in my own child, like some even things about having them be be informed about how 
screen time and different apps and things are affecting the brain and how they're trying to, you know, and, and having her see, you know, the conversations that we're having and this information I can see is making an impact on the choices that my child makes. You know, I can see that information making impacts. So this idea of talking about substance abuse with kids when they're younger, how young do we start talking about it or how it affects the brain and how do we start? (laughs) So the best substance use prevention programs, actually um, ones that have been assessed from objective outside third party uh, people are start in pre-K and kindergarten, as, which is why the addiction inoculation gives scripts for parents talking about this stuff. And as I've said, you know, this is not like talking to kindergartners about crystal methamphetamine use. This has to do with talking to kindergartners about, you know, why some substances like toothpaste stay are topical and we don't swallow them because they'll make our stomach upset and they can make us feel a little bit sick. You know, that's something that we put just on our teeth, but we don't ingest into our body or why we don't, you know, take those pretty Tide Pods and eat those, you know, that kind of thing, that whole protecting your body and understanding that some things aren't meant to go inside the body, they're only for the outside. And then, you know, graduating into a conversation about, you know, this this pill bottle on the counter that's a prescription for mommy, you know, why can mommy take this but no one else? Why should Why should I, as the kid, not take this medication that's made for my mommy? And Conversations around that are really important um, as well, because as we know from the statistics that um, if kids are going to misuse prescription, for example, opioids and or misuse them, that they are most likely to get those from their own medicine cabinet or a friend's medicine cabinet. So, you know, these conversations are super important and they have to start really, really young. Um, so, yeah, we start pre-K, kindergarten. Now, what if you were... Uh, a person who has struggled with addiction in your own life? And how does one disclose that to their kids and talk about that? That's such a great question. So it really depends. Um, I, uh, I got sober in 2013, June 7, 2013. My kids were 9 and 14, and I told them immediately. They already had some history. They knew about substance use disorder because um, one of their grandparents um, was actively still using at that point. Thank goodness that person's now in recovery. Um, And holidays had been ruined by, you know, alcohol. Um, It had been a thing that they knew about. And but we had to be really honest about it because kids who have genetics, well, first or second degree relative with substance use disorder, you know, have an increased risk of substance use disorder. It's about 50 to 60 percent of the risk picture, whereas childhood trauma, adverse childhood experiences and a couple, a host of a couple of other things make up the other uh, 40 to 50 percent. That's the best research we have right now. That comes from Mark Shuket at University of California at San Diego. And so talking about that, I don't didn't have a choice. I mean, if my kids are at increased risk for substance use disorder from a genetic standpoint, not to mention an epigenetic or an environmental standpoint, um, I just didn't have time to mess around and not talk about it. So my kids have been talking about, um, you know, their brains and drugs and alcohol and the impact on the brain and all this other stuff from the time that, you know, from as early as I can remember. And, you know, your choice about how to come out to your kids, uh, you know, that's really quite personal. I work at a rehab called Santa at Stowe in Stowe, Vermont. And one of my roles there is to 
start this conversation with the clients about, okay, well, you have kids. How are we, you know, once you get out of here and go home, how are these conversations going to happen with your family? And, you know, everyone handles it slightly differently. Um, and, but from my perspective and from the perspective of, you know, the reams and reams of reams of research that um, I've read, you know, honesty really does tend to be the best policy and talking to kids from a perspective of, um, here's all the information I can give you on what it does to your brain. Um, you know, your maybe a kid perceives that, oh, but all of my friends or all of my classmates are doing it. Well, we have really good data from the Monitoring the Future report that comes out every year on exactly how many kids in eighth grade, 10th grade, and 12th grade are doing it. And, you know, less than 25% of eighth graders report that they've had more than a sip of alcohol by the end of eighth grade. So, if your eighth grader knows that and someone comes to them and says, oh, come on, have a drink. It's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. They can know, A, it is a big deal because I know what it can do to my brain. And B, not everybody's doing it. You know, it's not like they have to say these things out loud, but at least they have what's called, this is actually inoculation theory, which is why the word inoculation is in the title of the book, The Addiction Inoculation, because we know that that confers protection against kids. It gives them the refusal skills they need to and the self-confidence and the self-efficacy to feel like they can push back, um, even if it's just in their own head. And the cool thing about um, inoculation theory is it cross-pollinates to other high-risk behaviors, like having sex before you're ready, getting in a car with a drunk driver, that kind of stuff. So when we inoculate kids, when we give kids refusal skills and help them feel like they really have the information to push back, um, yeah, it generalizes. So it's pretty powerful stuff. That's great. I love this. And this goes to a lot of the conversations, you know, we've we've had on, on the podcast and going back to talking to Amy Lang about talking to your kids about sex and all, having them being informed and information has a huge has a huge impact. Well, the problem here, though, with sex and with alcohol and drugs is that people are like, oh, if we talk about it, that will give them an idea to you. No, us talking about it gives them real solid information that can help them actually resist it. Not, it's not like, I don't know many kids who grow up in a bubble not knowing that like alcohol exists. In fact, kids as young as three can tell the difference between alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages. And, you know, even when kids are really young, you know, one out of every 11 cartoons has alcohol in it and usually around three instances of it. And between 52 and 57 percent of G and PG movies have alcohol in them with 30% of that being branded use by like the hero in the film. So this is not information that like if we start sharing it with our kids that they're going to be like, oh, I had no idea that addictive substances <laughs> existed. Let me go try those. That's just backwards thinking. Well, speaking of the information, when we were kids, we were shown that video on the commercial, you know, this is your brain frying egg and this is your brain on drugs, you know, in the frying pan. And we were all like, okay, this is like maybe backfired on us because then, you know, my brain didn't feel like a fried egg. What are we telling kids about how it is affecting the brain? Yeah. So first of all, that I, I happen to love that ad. Um, however, we do know that scared straight messaging doesn't work. So like if you, if your school's idea of drug and alcohol prevention is to have some like um, you know, re per person in recovery come and talk about just how bad things got in their life. We know that does not work. It does not work. Also, just say no doesn't work, right? We have to give them the actual tools and the actual data and stuff like that. So 
the best possible prevention. I mean, spoiler alert, the very best school-based programs, for example, are social-emotional learning programs with these health components. Um, and I list all of them. I list a bunch of them in the addiction inoculation. There are places you can go to get rankings and ratings and efficacy studies on the programs that are out there. I mean, the sad story having to do with schools is that only 57% of the schools in this country have any kind of substance use disorder or, sub, excuse me, substance use prevention program. And of that 57%, only 10% of them are based on evidence, like have any sort of efficacy proven. I mean, so we're really mucking that up. And then the other thing we know works is from an early age, giving kids information about, you know, what drugs and alcohol can do to them, why it messes with their decision making, all that other stuff so that we can at least send them out there with a vote of confidence to say, you know what, by giving you all this information, what I'm doing is trusting you to make some good decisions based on this information. And that vote of confidence goes a long way with kids. Um, and kids that are not trusted know they're not trusted. And, uh, it, you know, giving kids a, our vote of confidence is really important, you know, within healthy parameters, obviously. Awesome. I love that. Okay. So then if I go inside tonight and I say to my 12-year-old about to turn 13, honey, I made a mistake. I was wrong. I should not have had you uh, sip my wine and it was actually not helpful for you. And in fact, what what should I be telling her it is doing to her brain? So what I would do is I would say, sweetie, you know what? I did the best I could with the information that I had. Um, I have always, you know, tried to be the best possible parents based on the information that I have. And sometimes I learn new stuff and I realize that something I did may not have been the best decision. And I learned this thing about alcohol, that the earlier you try alcohol, um, number one, the more damage it can do to your brain, it can mess up um not just how the chemicals in the brain talk to each other and how our brains build these things called synapses and how the lower part of our brain connects to the upper part of our brain, that essentially our brains need to sort of be as free as possible without outside interference to sort of develop the way they're supposed to develop. And the later, the older you are before trying drugs and alcohol and using drugs and alcohol on a consistent basis, then you, the more we can protect your brain. I also learned that the longer we can delay you using drugs and alcohol, the less likely you're going to be as a grown-up to have a real problem with drugs and alcohol, to not be able to control it. Um, that's how I would talk to a kid of that age um, and to say, you know, it's not, it's not like, and the other message that's really important is it's not like, oh, you had someone you were younger, that's it, it's all over, I screwed you up. It's that and for example, if your kid goes out and gets drunk and you find out about it, the answer to this is, oh, my gosh, you're ruined. It's all over. I might as well not try anymore. You know, for me, if I were to relapse and have a drink, what I would be doing is saying, OK, well, what did I learn from that so that I cannot repeat that going forward? It's not like I'm broken. It's it's that it's that I misstepped and now I need to figure out how to how to do better you know it's it's why the the messaging that some kids get about like you know if you if to girls for example you know if you have sex before marriage then you're a piece of chewed up used gum that no one's going to want which is a uh, messaging that uh, uh, some kids get um this is not like that this is like oh okay so we did it one way it turns out we can do better 
and here's what we're going to do moving forward. Um, you know, my 19-year-old jokes about it, like to her friends. She's like, yeah, no, we're not going to get a little bit of the wine that we're having with Thanksgiving because my mom wrote this dumb book about preventing substance use in kids. And she jokes about it. But if you were to ask her seriously, like, why, why are we doing this? Why did we change the rules? And she's going to she's going to say what I said, which is essentially that, you know, I'm doing sort of my parenting best practices when it comes to substance use prevention. And um, the reason we changed the rules is because I learned some things and figured out how to do better. I love that. That's a beautiful. And that's all we can ever ask of them, right? That's all we can ever ask of our kids, which is yeah. do the best with the information that you have on hand. And if you learn how to do better or you make a mistake, apologize and go forward using the best possible information you have. Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcast right after this break. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. So one thing we know, right, that is that substance abuse, it looks different in boys and girls. What are these some of these differences? So when you look at predictors, so I have said that, you know, early initiation of, let's say, alcohol um, leads to higher risk of alcohol use disorder over your lifetime. And one of the predictors for early alcohol use or early substance use is one of them is being male. Males tend to initiate earlier than um Females. We also know that white kids tend to initiate earlier than black kids. We know that um, kids whose parents drink initiate earlier than kids whose parents don't drink. We know that kids whose parents have um, where the sort of the family culture is pro alcohol, that it's sort of like drinking is a positive. 
Um, those kids tend to initiate earlier. So keeping all of that in mind, you know, the boys versus girls thing has one added layer to it, which is that girls, interestingly, you know, I, I don't, you've probably heard that, you know, like the uh, recommendations for how much people should drink are different for men versus women. Um, it's usually higher for men and lower for women. Well, that has to do with the fact that alcohol um, gets processed. Anyway, boys tend to have more muscle. Women tend to have more fat um, per, you know, pound. And men can metabolize alcohol a little bit faster than women because of that, because they have more water content in their bodies. The other thing is that women tend to have less of this one particular enzyme that helps break alcohol down. Um, and so they are not only just from a body composition perspective, less able to, to break the alcohol down. It's also due to this one particular enzyme. So that's why those, those numbers tend to be different for men versus women. So, you know, drink, if women are trying to match men drink for drink, we're going to get in trouble a lot earlier than the men of the same age, same, you know, height and weight kind of thing. So there's a whole bunch of different things going on there um, that, you know, are important to talk to kids about. Yeah, we can talk, talk to our teens about that. And I would probably even talk to this, my daughter. My daughter is about to turn 16. She's not in a, a partying scene. She's like, kind of, you know, she has she's socially like. Things are happening. It's post-pandemic, et cetera, it's the stuff like that. So she re really finds the idea of alcohol really repulsive <laughs> and from, from everything I can tell from her. And But I would have this conversation with her just so she knows for her friends even as well, even if it's not something that... Yeah. Since we're bringing up friends, <laughs> kids whose friends drink are going to be more likely to drink themselves, right? Or use drugs themselves, right? That's sort of a no-brainer. But anytime we come up against a statistic that just seems so obvious that everyone just takes it at face value, of course, I have to do a really deep dive into it to figure out um, to take it apart because that's the journalist in me. And um, so I have an entire chapter in the addiction inoculation on peers and peer influence on um, on kids. And it's a little bit more complicated than that, although if we were just going to kind of, you know, give people one piece of information, it's that, yes, if your kid's friends drink and use drugs, your kid is more likely to drink and use drugs. Um, and like I said, there's some subtleties to that. The one of the stories I tell in the addiction inoculation is that um, that freaked me out because my son, Ben, was really good friends with this kid named Brian. And Brian got kicked out of high school for drug and alcohol use and behavioral stuff. And Ben and his friends really wanted to remain loyal to Brian and go visit him in rehab and and let him know that they were still behind him. And the parent and me wanted to just yell, no, flee, don't ever be friends with that kid again because he uses and that makes you more likely to use. Um, in the end, it was a little more complicated than that. Uh, my kid and his friends um turned out to be a really good influence on Brian and actually helped. He cites this one moment where after he got permanently kicked out of school, um, he went for a run with my son and a bunch of their friends from the cross-country team. And he cites that moment as a real breakthrough for him because he realized everything he had to lose if he didn't make this work. Um, and on the other hand, my kid got a massive object lesson in the consequences that can go along with um, drug and alcohol use. And I think it was highly beneficial for both of them. But in a vacuum, it is true that if your kid's friends use, then your kid is more likely to use.
okay, we know that this this our the peers have enormous influence, enormous pressure. You have wonderful ways in the book, in the chapter, and everyone's doing it for kids to help them say no, right? And so we know that just saying no, this is not this is not what's gonna work for them. So talk us through this. How can we help our kids resist their the peer pressure from their friends? So the idea behind inoculation messaging is similar to, you know, the thing it's named after, vaccines. So the idea is you show them something that's a kind of a weakened form of the approach that someone might ask you if you want to drink at a party, whatever, and give them ammunition to, um, at least in their own heads, like, you know, no, everyone's not doing it, or here's what it's doing to my brain or whatever, in order to combat that. So that's what inoculation messaging is all about, so that when the real approach comes, they'll feel empowered in order to refuse it. So there's that. But then there's also, um, you know, we keep talking about the information and how important the information is. And that's because for kids, well, for everyone, for me in particular, but for people in general, the why is what's so important. You know, we can't just say, you know, no, you're not allowed to drink in this house. Um, I mean, you can, but it, you're going to be less effective than if you say, no, you're not allowed to drink in this house for a bunch of reasons. I mean, if you want to go super obvious, we can talk legality. But if you want to go, you know, brain development, all that other stuff, you know, here's what's actually happening. And don't underestimate the teaching kids about their brain. I mean, even if we're talking about I got to visit a kindergarten where in that kindergarten, they were teaching kids about the function of the lower brain versus the function of the upper brain. And when we're operating from our lower brain, we're more likely to react to just, you know, haul off and punch someone because they said something that made us mad. But that's our lower brain stuff. And if we want to operate from the upper part of the brain, which is like the adulting part of the brain, the part that, you know, can understand the whys and wherefores of prosocial behavior, we um, we learned that, oh, OK, take a breath, <laughs> maybe do a little box breathing, understand that we don't have to react from our first um, our first emotion, that we can actually process that information from a, from a big kid place. That's essentially what they're teaching those kids. And that has a huge impact on empowering kids, helping them understand that sometimes they do want to react with a punch. But that's just because that's how their lower brain works. And, and we have to try to think from our upper brain, from our big kid brain. Um, it's really important stuff. And it, this applies for drugs, you know, drug and alcohol prevention and sex ed and all this stuff, you know, helping them understand that it's not their fault that they are highly reactive because their lower brain, their amygdala, the limbic system is in overdrive. But that, you know, the ideal is to try to let your op your upper brain have more um, have a share in the thinking as well. Um, so that's really, really important. So the answer, the big answer is the whys tend to be really important for kids. You know, do it because I said so. Do it because I'm an adult and I, you know, those don't tend to work very well. But um, we do it this way because X, Y, Z, um, you know, we have to give kids expectations. Yeah, I think this is so important at every age, right? Like this is, you know, at tiny young ages. But like, I love what you have. You have some sneaky things in here about how to help kids, how to help kids resist peer pressure. Once, yeah, I, that's that's my favorite part of the book. Once they understand all the whys and things like that, there's like some great sneaky things in here about how to resist peer pressure. Like you can tell your kid to tell their friends that 
alcohol gives them migraines or to be the bed designated driver. It's like so it's like brilliant ideas. I say that that's my favorite part of the book, but I can say that because I didn't really write that part of the book. Like those are those all came from kids. I asked adolescents to tell me what excuses they could use that would make them not feel like big nerdy dorks or save face or whatever at a party. And these were suggestions they gave me. Um, and especially it, a lot of them are really important, like the migraine thing, super important. Um, you know, I have a, I have trouble sleeping. Well, alcohol is not going to help with that. If you're of Asian descent, you have you are less likely to have the enzymes that you need in order to process that alcohol. And it can cause flushing and real bodily discomfort. That's very, very uncomfortable. There's, you know, I have an early track practice. By all means, throw me under the bus as the parent. I can't. My parents drug test and I, I can't or my parents breathalyze. You know, any of these answers, you know, as long as you can come up with something that works for you, um, then, you know, rather than just saying, oh, just say no, you're stronger than that. You're smarter than that. Give them these kid tested, <laughs> kid approved, you know, ways of saying no that will make them feel like they can, you know, still save face and yet, you know, stick to their guns. I love these ways. They're so great. This is so helpful. This is so helpful, I think, for so many of us, to, uh, parents of younger children, for teenagers to just kind of help us get on the right track of what's what is actually helpful, what is evident. <laughs> evidence-based information. I love that your obsession with research that I discovered um, in many ways, but uh, <laughs> um, yes, this is amazing. So the addiction inoculation, raising healthy kids in a culture of dependence, help you get your kids so that they're inoculated, so that they're safe in a culture that is not so safe for kids, uh, you know. Well, and can I add one quick thing, which is that all of so like I even if I follow every single guideline that the I came I discovered through the research, I can't guarantee that my kids are not going to have substance use disorder over their lifetimes. But getting to the point where you know you need help with your substance use disorder is kind of like a 100 piece puzzle. And, you know, for me, I got really lucky. My dad was the hundredth piece that clicked into place that and he said, you know, you need help. And I was ready to hear it. But he couldn't have been that hundredth piece without one through 99 being present. And for a lot of kids, they don't get a lot of information. So they have to start at like piece 20 or piece 25 or whatever. But I'm hoping that a lot of this prevention work are those pieces. You know, there's a saying in recovery that it's never as much fun to go out after you've gotten some information about, you know, the harm drugs and alcohol can do to your brain and your body and your life that it really harshes your buzz. And I'm okay with harshing my kids' buzz because I want them to have as much information as possible so that if they do realize that they're starting to go down the road of having an issue with drugs and alcohol, they'll be further along than I was. They'll have piece 50 or they'll have piece 55 or whatever that is. This prevention also serves as the getting to 100 piece when it comes to admitting that you need help. This is so helpful. Thank you, Jessica, for putting together this work and doing this work that you do. I know that you do it in Vermont as well. And uh, I really appreciate it. And of course, I love Jess's first book, the New York Times bestseller, The Gift of Failure. So, so helpful. Go um, and I'll, I'll share in the outro what number episode that is, right? <laughs> because I haven't looked it up right now, but you can listen to Jess talk about it with me there. 
And um, and thank you so much for taking the time for coming on again to talk to me about it. it it's so important. I really, really appreciate you doing this work. Um, where can people find out about you and what you're doing? You can find everything at uh, jessicalahey.com. Um, the blog post that happens to be pinned to the top is the one with all of the table of contents for all of the 130-something videos I've made uh, daily about all of the contents of the addiction inoculation. You can find me on Twitter at, at Jess Leahy and on Instagram at, at Teacher Leahy. Thank you so much, Jess. Well, I have to thank you. You've been an incredible supporter, a good friend, a kind human being that is just really great at translating what's good for kids and good for parents to people that really need the information. And I'm, I'm really grateful for what you do. I hope you found this episode helpful. I certainly did. I think it's so important. I have been talking about alcohol differently with my kids, and I think this is really, really important. And this book is just such a gift for all of us to help change and shift things in this country. If you love this episode, please do me a favor and share it. Share it with your friends. Share it with people you know. Share it on Facebook, on Instagram, all that stuff. Tag me in it at Mindful Mama Mentor. And let me know what your takeaways are. I would love that. As always, I want to let you know that if you want more support with parenting, it is a great idea to do that. It really helps you, your family, your kids, and it can be the best investment you ever make in your life. And we have the Mindful Parenting membership here to support you. Now every single member gets a one-on-one -on -one coach, has sessions with a coach, and we have group sessions with me. You have all the curriculum. It's so powerful. It can make a, such a big difference. So if you want more support, that is there for you. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com. And listen, I hope this was helpful. I hope you have a great week. I hope you have connection and joy and love with your kiddos. I am going to be doing that too. I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be honoring both the parent in me and the person that's, you know, beyond the role of parent. One thing I've been super into is I am into now Scottish country dancing and have been for a while now. And so tonight I'm going to a Scottish country dance class. We're all going to go out for a drink after. And this is a way to honor myself beyond my role as a mom. And I think that it's so important for you to have ways to honor yourself beyond the role of parent too. So I invite you to find that thing for you wherever it is. And maybe it's Scottish country dancing. It's all over the world. It's so fun. And we'll see each other at a dance, which would be cool. <laughs> anyway, wishing you a great week, wishing you peace and joy and all those beautiful things. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening and choosing us. I really, really appreciate it. I will talk to you again next week, my friend. Namaste. I'd say definitely do it. It's really helpful. It will change your relationship with your kids for the better. It will help you communicate better. And just, I'd say communicate better as a person, as a wife, as a spouse. It's been really a positive influence in our lives. So definitely do it. I'd say definitely do it. It's so worth it. The money really is inconsequential when you get so much benefit from being a better parent to your children and feeling like you're connecting more with them. And 
not feeling like you're yelling all the time or you're like, why isn't things working? I would say definitely do it. It's so, so worth it. It'll change you. No matter what age someone's child is, it's a great opportunity for personal growth and it's a great investment in someone's family. I'm very thankful I had this. You can continue in your old habits that aren't working or you can learn some new tools and gain some perspective to shift everything in your parenting. Are you frustrated by parenting? Do you listen to the experts and try all the tips and strategies, but you're just not seeing the results that you want? Or are you lost as to where to start? Does it all seem so overwhelming with too much to learn? Are you yearning for a community of people who get it, who also don't want to threaten and punish to create cooperation? Hi, I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and if you answered yes to any of these questions, I want you to seriously consider the Mindful Parenting membership. You'll be joining hundreds of members who have discovered the path of mindful parenting and now have confidence and clarity in their parenting. This isn't just another parenting class. This is an opportunity to really discover your unique, lasting relationship, not only with your children, but with yourself. It will translate into lasting, connected relationships, not only with your children, but your partner too. Let me change your life. Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com to add your name to the waitlist, so you will be the first to be notified when I open the membership for enrollment. I look forward to seeing you on the inside mindfulparentingcourse.com. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.